Hey, Diane. Hey, Michael. Diane, it was so good to see you last week at a gathering to celebrate Summit's 20th anniversary, as well as your leadership of Summit, as folks who listen to this podcast know, as you prepare to step down at the end of this year and Katie Chang takes over. Michael, I feel so grateful to you and so many others who joined for such a unique and powerful gathering, certainly to celebrate the 20 years, but also to really thoughtfully help build the social network and connections of Summit's next generation of leaders so they can carry forward. And it was so thoughtful of you to do it. As you know, leadership isn't just what you do while you're in the chair. It's how you prepare for the next group to take over and keep that continuity and just the thought you had done around that and then just assembling an incredible group of people with a really super thoughtful set of conversations. And and of course, I had to miss part of it. So I, I was a little bit of jealous, but I wondered if it might be the jumping off point for today's conversation for our podcast. Because as folks know, we started this in the months after COVID, disrupted our schools, and we have remained hopeful that there will be a silver lining to the disruption that it caused. And so I thought coming out of this week of, you know, there were so many people around you who have helped build Summit into what it is, and that you probably had a lot of opportunities to reflect and reminisce. Maybe you would be open to sharing some of those reflections for us and in the hopes that they might inspire some educators and parents and policymakers in our audience to do more and be more for students. Are you game for that? Absolutely, Michael. Uh, it's it, it was an incredible experience to have people gathered from all points in the history of Summit, which I would say tracks the charter movement, the ed reform movement, the sort of personalized learning movement. And so there's, there's so much to consider. And I must say it's still running through my mind. So I would love to talk with you about it. Perfect. Let's dive in. It really was a magical gathering. So so let's start with this. You're you're a reflective person in general. Anyone listening to this podcast, I think, knows that by now. I'd love to hear some of the reflections you've had in thinking about, you know, the past 20 years and coming out of that week. Mm. Well, I think the first one, and this showed up in in the stories that were told while we're in person, and I got all, a, a beautiful box of letters from people from, you know, sort of the whole history. And, um, you know, Michael, the thing that shows up the most is that um, we have always been focused on what's best for kids, not the number one criteria we use to make every decision that we make. And, you know, we've talked about it here. It's come up a lot in our various conversations. And um, what was clear to me is that um, that has been consistent for 20 years. And, you know, person after person told stories about the centering of students. There, There's one story that I hadn't even remembered of early, early days when we were talking, you know, we were in like a conversation at Summit uh, Prep about students. And one of the math teachers was like, well, these students aren't going to, you know, not all my students are going to pass my class. And apparently I went and printed out the class list and put it in front of the teacher and said, all right, we'll circle which one so we can call their parents right now and tell them they're not going to pass. And I guess that was a little jolting at the moment, but the, but the concept being, no, we in October decide that some kids aren't going to pass. And yet we have an education system that really does that as a general rule. And um, maybe they don't intentionally do it, but through their actions they do. And so 
centering kids and and committing to them really and everything we do is was was one of the biggest things that I think came out as something very consistent and unique that other yeah. people that people don't experience other places. I think the second thing was um, this combination of um, very high expectations for everyone, but um, combined with love and care. And again, through storytelling, this comes through over and over and over again, is that, you, you know, you don't care for kids or people by lowering the expectations. You care for them by having really high expectations and then offering significant support um, to help them reach those high expectations and that people are happiest when we have high expectations. And it really made me think about the last few years, Michael, and, you know, understandably so, I guess, with COVID and whatnot. But I do think we've had sort of a lowering of expectations just in general. And yeah, those stories were were powerful reminders of of where we're, we're none of us are going to be happy by not yeah yeah meeting a low bar and then the third one that um is really present for me and was just so present and i think you experienced it is um you know we tend to in our society sort of mythologize the single amazing leader this sort of superhero concept and it's so not true. It's never been true at Summit. Um, we have an incredible team of people who collectively lead together, who always have and will going forward. And I think you've got to see them sort of all together in a place together and experience them. And um, but a lot of people don't get to see that. Uh, you know, you see the sort of faith that's on on the organization and just the the idea that no single person can do these things alone or by themselves and they never do and and what it takes to invest in a group of leaders and their collaborative and collective nature to really move an organization forward so that was just felt like it was really profoundly on display as as we spent the week together yeah, I mean, it really was. And I it was so great to meet so many of the leaders because I knew a lot of your team a decade ago. I knew far less of them now. And it was great just to connect with them. They're a really diverse bunch. And I mean that not just as sort of surface level characteristics, but backgrounds, experiences, how they've come even into the country. Like It's just a really interesting collection of leaders with I think still an incredible amount of high expectations and care for, for kids like you talked about. And then I love that upfront one of you printing out the roster and saying, okay, which, which, which was, because as you know, I I've started calling it the big lie that we tell ourselves about our education system as we're trying to respond to quote unquote learning loss that we have a system that builds in learning loss by design. So unless we're prepared to reckon with that, I think we're just telling ourselves we're, we're sort of fooling ourselves in this process. Yeah. But I, but I guess it goes where I wanted to go next, which is those are reflections. How about some insights that you've now had from leading summit over the past 20 years as you start to step back? This is such a good one. And I, I will go back to the intention behind this event, which um, really came from, me studying and watching a lot of other successions over the last few years in other organizations in education 
I guess in other organizations as well, but really focused in education and many of them not going well. You know, a, a new leader coming in and and not lasting very long, um, a, a new leader coming in and then having the old leader come back to replace them again, you know, shortly thereafter, um, just organizations kind of imploding or falling apart under new leadership. And, and so I, we really set about to study that and, and not want to repeat that. Um, and so we were looking for positive deviance. So people who were doing things well and not, um, and not having that happen as well as lessons learned. And so, I mean, through that study, one of the things that I realized was, first of all, again, there's not these magical, mythical unicorn leaders out there who you just go and hire and then they pop into your organization and presto, everything's lovely. Um, what I really found was like the people who are best positioned to run the organizations are the people who've helped build it assuming that you have built their capacity to be leaders, which is something, you know, we do certainly at Summit. Um, But then when I started engaging with our team, the pieces where they felt like they weren't ready were in the external, the social networks and um, the connections to all of the other organizations, which not surprisingly, I as the leader get more access to than people who are working more internally. And so we just really spent a lot of time and energy thinking about how to build those connections and those networks across organizations and across leaders. That was the and and do a really methodical transfer of social capital. And I know you and others around you have, have written extensively about the importance of this for our students. It turns out it's not only important for students; that's it's important throughout our lives, right? Um, and so. That's one of my insights, you know, which sort of runs counter to, I would argue, my experience, which was kind of steeped in our American rugged individualism, right? Like you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, you know, I felt lucky that along the way that people helped me, but it certainly wasn't methodical. It certainly wasn't systematic. It was lucky. And so... That's a little bit long-winded, but that is really on my mind as, as something important. And if we're not doing it for adults, we're probably not doing it for our kids either. Mm-hmm. I think the second one is, and Michael, we've talked about this. This should not come as a surprise to anyone, but one of my insights, and it continues to be the power of assessment as a lever for change or quite frankly, to stay the same. And no matter where I sort of, travel in my thinking you know, and analysis, I keep coming back to assessment really does drive so many decisions and behaviors in schools. And, um, you know, this really, this past week, I, I was working with some of the folks who have been, you know, leading Summit Learning for the last couple of years. And one of the things they noticed is like the one part of Summit Learning that people don't really use is the rubric that we built, the sort of, you know, masterful, incredible rubric, which in my mind is the heart of it, to do their scoring. And it's because it doesn't line up with district or state assessments that are the big global assessments. And I'm like, oh my gosh, (laughs) literally (laughs) assessment drives everything. (laughs) And, um, and so and our assessments aren't aligned with what we want or what we care about, in my view, and as we've talked about. And so if we if we want something different, we're going to have to tackle assessment. And I know there's a number of people who have realized that and are starting work there, but it is 
it's a mammoth task. So that that and then my third is, and again, this is this is a long time in coming, but um, you know, in general, theory and practice do not intersect in our work, which is so crazy to me because as we've talked about the you know the the science of learning has evolved so much in the last 50 years and it's just not getting applied in schools and that that's not to blame anyone that is to suggest we have collectively not figured out how we don't just have sort of researchers throwing things over the fence and expecting educators to catch them and educators like not catching them or not having the time or the ability or the thing that's coming at them is completely impractical and like unimplementable and there's no like collaboration around how to do that and you know this was brought home to me and in, in the conversation we had this past week there was this beautiful moment where one of our school leaders who is newer to the organization was describing her experience with the habits of success which are based on the building blocks and you know, in in the same conversation, Brooke Braz- Stafford Brazard was there and was almost brought to tears by just this description of educators taking this work and like making it their own and implementing it. And she said, you know, it's one dimensional on the page, but that's not what it's ever intended to be. It's it should be in full dimension, but that has to be done in collaboration with educators and you have to take it and make it work. And, and just so much more of that is needed. Um, you know, and in this moment in time not even in the space that I work, but the science of reading is just like, we have this, this feels like the most urgent thing we should be doing in the country right now. Certainly not passing absurd parent bills of rights. We should be focused on making sure every kid can read. Maybe a topic for a future week, yeah. uh, but but the uh, you know I mean if we really care about rights that that's where it would start I think. But the in terms of the intersection of theory and practice, it's interesting because I think theory often gets lumped in with theoretical, which is devoid of reality. Whereas theory, like they're supposed to be very practical. Yes. If you do this, it causes that, and therefore, right? Like statements of gravity, it's a theory of what causes what and why. And we don't connect those nearly enough to your point in, in, in practice. And, and I, I think the assessment point is really interesting as well to hear you reflect on that, Diane. And I think you're right. When I go around districts and I, less so these days, but I used to go around and see summit learning put into a lot of districts. And you're right. They were often putting the artifacts in, frankly, but not the actual intention uh, behind the bigger shift. And so it could get stripped i think of its bigger value which which frankly in my mind can't be put into place in just a very narrow like we're going to keep our schedules the same we're going to keep our assessments the same and and not tinker uh or or not transform really practice so i i guess if those are the insights maybe let's switch to lessons learned you know things you thought you knew and but you found out otherwise or, or something that you wish you had learned earlier. I, I guess it's a bit of a choose your own adventure here, how you want to answer it. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, I, I think people would be curious, you know, things you thought you knew or lessons that you've learned along the way. Yeah. I think a big one for me, Michael, is as I was reading through this sort of box of letters and notes from from people for over the 20 years 
if I were doing one of those like word bubbles, I think the biggest word that would pop out would be fierce. And, uh, and that's a descriptor of me and fierce in a lot of different ways. And I think most people who know me know that um, I certainly am willing to, you know, fight for what I believe is right and most often um, fight for what I think is right for kids. But it was interesting to just read the word over and over and over again. And I think a lesson that I am learning, um, and I'm learning it um, with a lot of people, but certainly led by my good friend Antonio Saunders, is the, the cost of that, the cost of the fighting. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, if we, as he says, if we're becoming expert in the thing that we don't want the world to be, it makes it really hard to be dreaming and designing the world that we want. And by that, I mean, you know, if I'm becoming expert or am expert in fighting for kids, won't I just perpetuate a world that will be about fighting versus dreaming and designing for the world that I want? And, you know, there's just a lot of reflection. I would argue that we are dreaming and designing as well. And, there's a lot of fight in what we do and a lot of time and energy. And I I've thought a lot about that over the last several years of like, why is it that when you sign up to do good work for kids that you also have to sign up to be, you know, personally intact and, you know, sort of in these nasty brawls, if you will, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and um, yeah, so I wonder, I guess my lesson learned is how, might I um, play a role in just changing that dynamic? And it's certainly easier said than done, but I'm grappling with that one for sure. Makes a lot of sense. Um, And then the other one will not come as any surprise because we talked about it very recently, but I just think we're so bad in education at the stopping of doing things that aren't working. We just hold on to things forever, <laughs> no matter what. Um, and we've talked, we, you know, you and I have talked about, is that because of nostalgia? Is that because of it's what's comfortable? I was thinking this past week over, you know, this, I think in general, we think that career teachers are really beneficial. And I, I wonder what the, the downside of that is. You know, you get into your career, you learn a way to do something, and then you're expert at it, and you do it for the next 20 or 30 years, regardless of what might be best for kids. And so I'm sure I just offended a whole bunch of people right there. But because um, certainly not all teachers do that, they evolve and change. But, but they're Again, I'm just going to point back to where we seem to be so stuck on reading right now. Like it, it's irrational to me that we have so many teachers in this country teaching reading in a way that we know does not work for kids. We have all the evidence we need, and yet they keep doing it. I don't, yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> um, and so that, yeah, that. How do we get good at? And I'll be even more controversial. Like some schools need to close and work horrible at closing schools in America. We we have no like ability to do that. And so we got to figure out how to stop. No, that that all resonates for me. I think it's even worse when I see superintendents in the news defending the way that they're teaching reading, which is frankly not teaching reading. It's it's 
under this flawed idea of trying to get kids to love reading without teaching them how to read as i mean and you as you know we tend to enjoy things that we're good at in life so if you build the skill <laughs> enjoyment may come but the i guess the second piece of that just in 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 terms of how to stop doing things that occurs to me is i i, I mean i think you're right like just the country trying to figure out what we're being nostalgic for uh, is is a really difficult piece of this that we just haven't cracked. And maybe I'll tone down the controversy part of your statement about teachers just to say, like, I think the other piece of that is that teachers are speaking with their feet, if you will, which is they're saying, a lot of them are saying, I'm not going to be a lifelong teacher. I'm This is going to be a 10-year phase of my career. Maybe I'll come back to it in another 10 years. But I think we as a country, as a result, are going to get forced into grappling with how do we reinvent a profession that we can't count on the same labor for a 30, 40 year career? And what happens if it's more fluid and how do you onboard and, and, and sort of bring teachers up the curve quicker, leverage their expertise, but then acknowledge they may not be there for several decades that that might force us to grapple with this. So I, I guess that's the last piece is that I think educators may bring us into this reality as well. Yeah. Last question for me as we start to wrap up, which is, I'm, I'm curious, like something, this is the opposite of the last question, which is something that you've had conviction around when you began leading Summit, mm. when you got tapped. And it was, it was so nice to talk, sit with members of your board and hear the stories for how they found you and stuff. But uh, what's something that you had conviction around when you began leading Summit and now you actually feel even stronger about than mm. before? Such a good question. And um, I'll use the language I use now because I don't think it's the language I used then, but it's certainly the intent that I had then. I am more convicted than ever about focusing on um, students' ability to self-direct and drive their own learning. And here's the piece that goes with it. Um, I think that has to be paired with personalization because you can't self-direct through, you know, a monolithic one-size-fits-all uh, world and and set up schools. And, and I would add in community, because I think sometimes what gets lost with self-direction and personalization is people think it's a solo act that you're just by yourself and learning really is a team sport and a, a group experience. And so, it's the combination of those three things in my mind. But but at the end of the day, you know, what's so clear to me is no one will care more about a student's experience in school and their achievements and what they learn than the student themselves. It's their life. You know, it's interesting. There's this funny story I have that I always turn back to when I um, got pregnant and I went to the doctor. Um, I had been charting. And so I knew exactly, like I knew the exact day that I got pregnant. And um, for a variety of medical reasons, like I had a different cycle and whatnot. And so the doctors pr said, oh no, you got, you know, they, they um, calculated two weeks different from what, and I tried to explain to them, no, I know that I didn't get pregnant that day. I know it's this day. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. But in the chart, you know, it was two weeks different. So I go through my entire pregnancy Knowing that I, you know, and sure enough, I deliver exactly when I think that I'm going to deliver, like, but not according to their two weeks off. And it occurred to me during that time, I was like, 
wow, I didn't really have to be in charge of my own pregnancy here because these people are here to help me and they're well-intentioned and I think they care, but no one will ever care as much as I do. No one will know as much as I do about myself. Like, So I really started to see them in a different light in that way. And I, I, this is what I believe in and want for, for students and, and kids is that they own their learning. Um, they control their learning and we're there to help guide them and support them and give them what they need, but they are really driving it. And it's a system that believes that they can do that and trust them to do that. Yeah. That's a really, I think, awesome place to leave the conversation because it goes back honestly to the high versus low expectations for kids also. And the world isn't getting any simpler right now. And so maintaining those high expectations and I, I love your book prepared because that's what we're trying to ultimately do is prepare kids to be able to enter that complex world and and they're going to have to own not just their learning but their health their their well-being everything in that context so i think that's a great place to leave it maybe uh, as we always do something you're reading outside of the work uh, or watching or whatever is is going on right now that that you'd like to share well, I might surprise you on this one, Michael. I don't know what's gotten into me, but this is my my second economics book of the year, which is a little out of character for me. Um, I, I've been reading Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail by Ray Dalio. And I know he's very familiar to lots of people and lots of people have read a lot of the Principles book. This is my first one. I am fascinated by this book. It just feels like it's making a lot of sense of our world to me. Um, you know, I, I am constantly struggling because it's definitely all the research in it is based on averages, which, you, you know, not I have been turned away from averages by our good friend Todd Rose. But um, in this particular case, it seems to be appropriate. What I do like about it is it sort of the, it approaches the way you should be learning history, which is sort of these big themes and trends. And you, you kind of establish a knowledge of that and then hang the details on it, which is not the way we generally teach history. And so I like that approach to it. Um, and I just am seeing, uh, making so many connections and it, it really is useful and helpful for me to think about just where we are in the, the economic cycles right now in our country, in our world, and how that impacts our daily, daily experiences and where we might be going. So fascinating. So wow. curious for me to be doing that, but I am. How about you? I, well, maybe I'm surprising you too because I'm staying on my fiction kick. So <laughs> we maybe we've just flipped a little bit. On each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I just finished reading uh, Vivi Ganeshanathan's book, Brotherless Night, a few weeks ago. And, and the author is known by her friends actually as Sugi, not Vivi. Uh, and she happens to be one of my best friends dating back to middle and high school, Diane. Oh. And uh, Sugi wrote a it's a work of historical fiction. It chronicles some of the really complicated storylines from the Sri Lankan Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, she's Tamil and part of the diaspora that uh, grew up in the United States, but it's situated around a main female character who's Tamil mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in the part of the country where Sugi's from. And I will say this, I really enjoyed her first book, Love Marriage, but I thought this one was far exceeded it and was just an absolute masterpiece. Mm -hmm. It is incredibly intense. <laughs> Had to put it down many times and just step away from it because there's, a, and there's a lot of depth for it, depth to it and cause for reflection. 
But I will say the New York Times book review agreed because they actually put it on the cover of their print issue a couple months back, which was really cool to see. So highly recommend that. But I will also say just a thank you, Diane, uh, in throughout this conversation for sharing so much as you've had a chance to reflect over 20 years of lessons learned. And I look forward to hearing from listeners, uh, their thoughts as well on this one. And just thanks to all of you for once again listening to this episode of Class Disrupted. Mm-hmm.